is a great God, and we want to serve Him, and we want to celebrate His greatness together. One of the ways that we've seen this, uh, exciting to celebrate and announce to you, uh, just recently in our children's ministry program, uh, we saw four of our young ones uh, come to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's, that's right. Celebrate. That's right. That's what this is all about. Now, some of you celebrated. That's cool. Uh, Super Bowl next week, Kansas City has not been in the Super Bowl for 50 years. You can imagine how excited and crazy their fans will go if they win the Super Bowl. Here to tell you that should pale in comparison to our cheering when the dead are raised to life. Amen? Jesus said that, that, that all of heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents. So we got quadruple the celebration going on this morning. Jesus died to save these precious ones and to raise them and give them new life and new hearts. And today we're going to be looking in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, talking about this kingdom heart. Jesus is teaching what the new hearts of these four precious children will look like in his kingdom. Now, last week we started a six-week uh, look at the greatest sermon that was ever preached. I wasn't talking about mine. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he starts by saying, this is the kind of person who's blessed in my kingdom, who enters into my kingdom. We looked at the Beatitudes. And then he shows us this is completely upside down from anything that we would call the good life, the blessed life. He says that the good life, the blessed life, is one that is humble before your God, that puts other people in front of you, and is persecuted for it. He says that's the good life. Now, if I'm one of his disciples and I'm hearing this message, my shoulders are starting to slump. I'm going, man, how I could never live up to this. I know my own heart. It's not pure. It's not merciful. It's not humble. I won't be able to patiently endure persecution. I can barely wait five seconds on K Beach Road to turn out. If there's like five cars, I'm losing my mind. My internet lags. I'm starting to lose patience, right? I know my heart. The disciples are surely thinking, then who in the world can be blessed? Who, who can live rightly? The Bible word for that is, is righteousness. Now remember, why did God create us in the first place? He created us for relationship with himself, right? So that we could know him, walk with him. But in order to relate with a right perfect God, he tells us over and over that we must be right too. The way he says it over and over in scripture is, be holy as I am holy. To have relationship with him, we must be like him. Now, this is a mostly Jewish audience that Matthew is addressing here, that Jesus is preaching to on the mount. And so when they, how would they answer the question, how do we live rightly? They would look to the law of Moses. Now, this was God's covenant that he had made with his people. A covenant's like a, it's a, an agreement. It's a partnership. And the covenant that he set up with them was, you will obey this set of laws to live rightly in the kingdom of Israel, and I'll bless you. You'll be a light to the rest of the nation, showing them how to live. The law was their code of life. It was their identity as a people. This was everything. And so when some random dude, some carpenter from Nazareth, shows up and says, hey, I want you to follow my way and my teachings. They're going, who are you? We, we already have the law, and we already have these really good teachers, the scribes and Pharisees, who tell us how to live that way. So Jesus has to show his audience how what he's teaching lines up with God's standard for them, his law, his scripture, but he also has to show why they would follow him, why his teachings, his way, is the way into the kingdom and to live rightly. And that's why he says... 
what he says in the next portion of his sermon. Verse 17, as he teaches us about the source of the right heart. He says in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, when we say the law and the prophets, this is another way to refer to the Jewish Bible, all that they had at that time, what we would now call the the Old Testament. This is how they'd sum up that, all of that writing. So some people would say, well, the law is bad, right? We've taught like legalism and we don't do the law, like we're under grace and, and, and this law is sin, right? Well, Paul would disagree with you and to disagree with Paul, you're in bad company. He says in Romans 7, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says there's nothing wrong with God's Law And Jesus says the same thing in the next two verses. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And heaven and earth have yet to pass away. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, make no mistake, God's standard is right and good and it will never change as surely as heaven and earth will not pass away. And so what he, what he looks at here, he says, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. When he uses the word abolish here, It means to destroy or overthrow or to render something vain. He said, I didn't come to do that. Like, let's say I had an acorn, hard to find this time of year. And if I take this acorn, I could, I could, I could get this, rid of this acorn, have it cease to be an acorn in one of two ways. I could smash it with a hammer, right? Release some of the anger and pent up frustration of how cold it is outside. I could take it out on that little poor little acorn. I could smash it to bits. Or I could allow this acorn to be planted into the ground and, and to carry out the fulfillment of what it was originally intended to be, which is what? It's an oak tree. Right? Jesus is saying, I didn't come to say that the law is stupid and irrelevant and come to smash it to bits. What Jesus is saying is, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, to and essentially to allow them to become, to grow into what they actually were intended to be, what they were intended to point to. What does he mean by that? Well, the word fulfill, it means to bring to completion or reality. Jesus is, 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 with this concept of fulfillment, we see this over and over again in Matthew. We see that's one of his central themes. Already in the first five chapters, we've seen all the ways that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. But he isn't just saying, I came to fulfill specific prophecies that people made earlier about me. That I'll, live, I'll be born in Bethlehem and that I'll, I'll be born of a, a virgin. But more specifically, he's showing how the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all pointed toward Jesus. You see, the Bible is one big story. It's one story, and the whole Bible points to Jesus. He's the reality of these shadows. So at the beginning, when when the law is unpacked, he says, this is how you live rightly. But Israel wasn't able to do that. Only Jesus would ever live rightly. And that's why the sacrificial system in the law, that all pointed to Jesus. He was fulfilling that too, as he was the lamb that died in our place because we couldn't keep the law. And the whole history of Israel, they were called to be God's faithful, obedient son. And you know how bad they botched that. But that all pointed to the true son that would come and obey. And the wisdom literature showing how to live rightly. 
Jesus was the only wise man who ever lived that truly walked, not according to his own understanding, but his father's. Then we look at the prophets and all of the fulfillment. They pointed forward to the deliverer, to the Messiah, to the king, and from the line of David who would come and defeat sin and death and rule and reign forever. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. It's its point. He says here, until, this law will not pass away until all is accomplished. What's he, what's he talking about here? Well, what he came to fulfill. Everything, he, the good work that Jesus came to do. We see that in his earthly life, that he lived the perfect life that we never could. That then he died for us, those who, did, who lived wrongly, paid for our sins. And then he rose from the grave to give us new life like those four precious children from Wednesday night. And then he's coming back one day to, to defeat death for good that we will reign with him as he is the king of the universe. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I did not come to smash the law to bits. I am actually the oak tree that the acorn of the law was intended to become. I'm its fulfillment. What a beautiful word. Then he says this in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we think of the Pharisees today, we kind of think of them as the bad guys, right? They're the hypocrites. They're the villains that Jesus calls out. But for Jesus, his audience, they were the gold standard for living, baby. That, that they, the, the dots and iotas that they, he referenced earlier, they kept those. They, they tithed the right way. They dressed the right way. They ate the right way according to God's law. In fact, they had piles of books that were written to keep hedges around the laws. There were laws on top of laws. They were, they were law-keeping machines. And he goes, exceed them? They're thinking, who in the world could do that? But when he says exceed here, he doesn't mean just to simply do better. He's not saying, you know, the Pharisees had righteousness. Y'all need a hundred. That's not what he's presenting here. It's not just a better righteousness. It's actually a different kind of righteousness altogether. See, Jesus knew that what we didn't, it was not what we needed. It was not a new course, a new standard. God's standard was right and holy and good. But what we needed was a new source, a new heart altogether. So think of it this way. If I am a dead tree branch, I can't become a living, fruit-bearing branch simply by stapling fruit to my branch, right? It looks like there's fruit there, but I didn't change, right? Think of it, if, if I'm an elephant, I can't become a bird simply by stapling feathers to my elephant chest or doing like feather-growing CrossFit, right? Which is, this is my CrossFit. <laughs> I need those new hips. Um, it's not just outward conformity. All the feathers stapled to this elephant in the world ain't going to make him Dumbo. I'm not just doing the wrong things. I am the wrong thing. An apple tree naturally produces apples, and the bird naturally flies. So what I need is to be grafted into a new source. What I need is to be born again into a different being altogether. Jesus is saying, what I'm about to teach you isn't just staple more fruit or feathers to your chest. The, the problem is not just our actions, and the problem's not a wrong law, it's the wrong heart. So as I've mentioned, I'm a substitute at KB Elementary, and uh, on the playground we have the 11th commandment, thou shalt not playeth on the iseth, declareth the duty. And you will send a I had to send a kid against the wall because he broke the law. 
And all the way to the wall, he says, stupid rule, that's a stupid rule, I should be able to play on the ice. I said, no, the rule's not stupid, you're stupid. I didn't say that to him. <laughs> that law saved your life, you ignorant little seven-year-old heathen, right? Again, if I say those things, they'll never invite me back, so I just think them in my sinful heart. The, the kid, listen, the kid doesn't need a new law, right? There's nothing wrong with the law, don't go on the ice. And what he doesn't need is a more intense law, like do not even go neareth the iceth, right? That's not what he needs is hedges, The problem is his rebellious little heart that likes to do exactly what he's told not to do. The kid didn't even want to play on the ice, but once he was told not to, ah ha-ha. And it's ignorance, right? Like, he doesn't trust the duty's heart. We're, We're telling you that so you don't crack your skull, man. We're not trying to rob you of fun. He doesn't just need a different action. Because, he listen, he could avoid the ice, but still be disrespectful, Right? All right, I'm staying off your stupid ice and obeying your stupid rules. Here I am. But what he doesn't realize, the, the, the bigger picture, in, the, in, in Caribou Land at K-Beach, we have three laws. Be safe, be respectful, and be responsible. Now, is he being respectful? He, he's obeying the outward conformity. He's not on the ice, but he's not showing respect to the duty. And he's not actually, he doesn't have the intent of safety written on his little wicked heart. <laughs> poor kid. <laughs> this poor little guy. The law is the right course of being holy like God, of relating with him, of bearing his image. The problem is, though, the law does not give us the power to do it. It's the wrong source. I love John Bunyan's. I've read this many times in church to us. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The the law tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings. See, Jesus isn't just commanding a new, higher standard. Don't even go near the ice. He's promising a new heart. Jesus did not come to to do away with what Moses said and smash it to bits, but through his fulfillment, through his accomplishing his good work, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he actually made it possible for what Moses had presented to become a reality in our hearts and our lives. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching us what this new heart will look like daily, practically, and not just outwardly, but inwardly. And remember, we said that the order and flow of Jesus' sermon here is, is intentional and it's essential. The first 16 verses, he tells us who we're called to be, who is in the kingdom, who's blessed in the kingdom. And then he turns for the majority of the sermon, these next five weeks, is what we're called to do. But the order is important. By becoming the right person, we'll start to do the right things. To become a bird versus just stapling feathers to my elephant chest. The day is coming. Jeremiah 31 promises us, this is the new covenant, that the law will be written on our hearts and it will become as naturally to do what God would do, to be who God is, as it is to breathe air, as it is for the bird to fly, as it is for the apple tree to produce apples. He's presenting us what the kingdom heart looks like. This is necessary groundwork for what we're about to read. That's the source of the right heart is Jesus. Now what does the course look like? Jesus is going to present six different everyday areas of life and what the right heart looks like there. Now for time's sake this morning we only got three of them. So your homework is going to be to take that and apply it to the the next three. The first area is going to be just going to be dealing with irritation with one's neighbors. I told you this is everyday life. Anybody been irritated this week? I see all the parents nodding vociferously. Um, In each area, Jesus is going to speak this pattern. He's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say. 
And he's going to be pointing out the old way of only following the outward conformity versus the inward, the new way of the new heart. So he says it this way. Um, you have heard it said that though of those, the, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he says the old way, and we know that in the Ten Commandments, right? This is number six. Thou shalt not murder. So the old way was do not murder. And in the Mosaic law, if you murdered, there was a death penalty. You will be liable to judgment. And they were. But Jesus, he takes it to the heart level, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus' new way is not only do you not murder, there's not even an indulgence of anger. Now, important to see here, Jesus is not saying if you're angry at someone, it's the same as murdering them. So if you look at someone with a scowl, they're not, somebody's like, you're under arrest in an electric chair, right? Like, how dare you? We, of course, there's different consequences. Now, what is anger? Anger is an emotional response when someone or something obstructs my will. It's an emotional response when someone obstructs my will. So when I'm driving down K Beach on a beautiful winter day and someone pulls out in front of me, and then decides to go 20 miles an hour in a 45. I know it's winter, but the roads are dry right now. You know, I'm in, and then instantly, I'm inflamed, right? And I'm going, and I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, right? I'm trying to focus. And what happens now? Anger, and listen, anger in of itself is not a sin. It says, in your anger, do not sin. But when anger is indulged, when it's embraced, when it's cuddled up with, it leads us to sin, and it leads us to contempt. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These are strong words. This, this phrase here, you fool, it, it was the word racha. It was actually like spit would come out of your mouth. It was this heart towards somebody. It was a heart of contempt. Now, they say there are different facial expressions that tell us what uh, different emotions are, and contempt can be very subtle. So it's just the, kind of that lip raised and, the te- and, and tensed onto one side. Um, but you, you've had that look before. You look at somebody and you're like, Pfft. usually has that. And, and what's happening there? Now, t- fool today, it's kind of like a jester or something. Maybe today you beeping beep w- would be a better, a, better, a better connection there. I'm going to get elder emails here. Um, <laughs> anger in my heart says you're dumb. It says I want to hurt you. But contempt says, you're worthless. Go away. You're nothing to me. I don't care if you get hurt or not. And what are we doing when we start down that road? We're taking the dignity and life of an image bearer. And we begin to dehumanize them until if we had been given enough time and the right opportunity, we would stab them in the back. See, Jesus gets at the heart here, not just the outward. He's not just like, have you murdered any of your neighbors this week? No? Great, you're living right, right? Hashtag blessed, right? No, he's taking it to the next, not just don't kill someone, don't even move in the direction of devaluing and wishing someone were dead. And instead, he moves to the positive. So the kingdom heart isn't just a list of what we don't do, but it is what we do. He says in verse 23, if you're offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. 
Now, you understand here, he's talking about the sacrifices, the worship of their God, which is at the center of who they are as a people and what they're called to do to love their Lord, their God. But what he's saying here is if you've got a beef against somebody else, you leave the sacrifice there and you take care of it first. Now, all sacrifices were made in Jerusalem. Most of these people lived up in the Galilee area in Capernaum. This would mean if they're down in Jerusalem, that's three plus days back home, then three days to return to the altar. That's a week's worth of time and money. Jesus is using hyperbole or exaggeration here to make a point. He's saying live in such a way. Live in such a way that when you worship, there is no anger between you and a neighbor. Because the reality is, when there's something hindering a horizontal relationship, there is also something that's hindering the vertical relationship. To love God is to love your neighbor. Now, of course, we know in reconciliation, both parties have to move toward each other. So you can't control their side of the street. But the question is, have I done everything in my power to reconcile with them? This isn't just have I murdered someone or not. This is do I value my fellow image bearers? And, and maybe you need to ask yourself this morning, what broken relationship do I need to actively pursue in, in my life? Because we can't sing the songs we're about to go after the sermon if, if we're not pursuing that as well. I'll give you permission to leave the service if you need to. Um, what's the point of this? Remember, remember we said this is God's heart to be like him, to walk with him. What's God's heart? We see God's heart is one that gives life. It does not take life. God, God is one who, who does not hold contempt for us. But Jesus, when, when shown contempt, actually laid his life down for others. And we see each of these corresponding back to who we're called to be in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who go out to restore relationships, not to tear them apart. These are the ones that are blessed in my kingdom. Second one, he moves towards sexual attraction. Just like, just like irritation, most of us have probably been sexually attracted to someone this week. Now again, he follows this pattern. Verse 27, you've heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now again, he's pointing back to the old way where it just said no adultery. This is the seventh commandment. And the outward form of this is to not have intercourse with somebody other than a spouse that I'm married to. And again here, Jesus takes it to the heart level, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. Now again, he's not saying that they're the exact same thing. To look at somebody and dream of something is very different than following through with it. But think of all the ways that you can be a terrible, unfaithful spouse your heart without technically committing adultery and here's the thing jesus's new ways he says don't even indulge lust because just like with anger if we're not indulging lust we're not going to be moving toward adultery jesus is looking at the cause not just the effect he's looking at the root of the problem not just the fruit that it will eventually or could potentially bear now we've all been walking through the supermarket we've all been walking down a beach <laughs> hopefully not this week and and out of the corner of your eye you see somebody noticed a beautiful image bearer of God. And, and you got to hear Jesus' word here. He is not condemning the notice or even the, the, the feeling of an impulse that we have. There's a natural aspect to that. 
But there's a, it's a very different thing to linger, to gaze, and start to cultivate a heart toward that person that says, I want to consume them. So what does he suggest we do? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now again, we've got to be careful here. Jesus is using hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. If we obeyed Jesus literally here, none of us would have hands or eyeballs. Remember, Jesus is not creating a new law. He's not just saying, don't even go near the ice. Because if that's the case, he said, don't look at a woman with your heart. Well, am I going to start putting a blindfold on and not looking at women? That's not the point. He's not saying cut off your hand and pull out your eyeball. Because here's the reality. Justin, without limbs or eyeballs, can still lust in his heart. This is the problem. You remember the Monty Python sketch where the guy's got his limbs all hacked off and he's still yelling at the guy, I'll bite your legs off, right? Because the problem was that wicked soldier's little heart. No, Jesus exaggerates to say, are you willing to do whatever to run from sin? To get out of harm's way. So maybe for you, maybe that's, are you willing? Would you be willing to go back to a flip phone? If you know that having this device that's always connected to the internet, you know your own self-control level right now, and you can't do it. Wouldn't that be better than where else that will take you? Or, or, or what if it means stop watching that show that you know continually arouses you and sends you in the wrong direction, even if that means stopping on a cliffhanger? Am I doing everything in my power to not even cultivate a heart of lust and positively to see people the way God sees them and to say in my heart, I'd rather take one of my own body parts than harming the people around me. Again, we go back to God's heart. God's heart is one that's faithful, one that's satisfied with his bride. He doesn't discard us and go on to the next new thing. He will always be there. Blessed are the pure in heart. We said last week that means to will one thing. We see one thing, we desire one thing, and that's God's way. And that's the spouse that God's given us, or the lot that God has given us in our lives, to be content there. The third one, unhappiness with a marriage partner. So we've looked at murder, we've looked at adultery, now we're on to divorce. Anyone else getting the warm fuzzies this morning? All right, we're feeling good? You guys doing okay? You're like, I'm gonna, I'd be better out in the 20 below degree weather out there, man. You're killing me. Let me just say, verse by verse can be brutal, but we need to hear it. And, and, and I also want to say that there are fewer passages than the next two verses that we're about to read that have caused more harm or pain when misunderstood or misused. And so we want to be careful. Lord, give us the grace. Lead us and guide us. Verse 31. It says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now he's taking this from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Now listen, in Moses' day, just like in Jesus' day, women virtually had no rights and men had very hard hearts. And this law was originally given to prevent divorce without grounds and it was also given to, prevent, to allow, give financial protection for women. There was this whole dowry system and if she got married to a second guy, a second dowry, could get, it's, a, it's a whole other thing. 
but it was given to protect them. Now, Jesus was living in a time when men could, uh, could essentially, and even the rabbis would advocate, you could divorce your wife for whatever reason you wanted to. You could just say, I like this one better, and move on. And he said, as long as you gave him a pink slip, as long as you gave him the certificate, that it was cool. Jesus comes, and he's, he's here to defend the well-being of women, and he's here to protect the sanctity of God's design for marriage. And so he says in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is returning to God's high regard, high view of marriage. He says, What God has united is made one flesh. Let no one separate. To be faithful to one another. The old way said it this way, because you will, because you have hard hearts, do it properly. Do it in a way that will provide and will protect this woman who has no rights. Whereas the kingdom heart says not only do we not want to, it's not just legitimize it and make it legal, but the new way says a heart, you have a heart toward a spouse that does not want to divorce at all. Now, I know there are many here today who have walked that road in one a way or another and it's messy and it's complicated and there's grace there are times when divorce is necessary even jesus here says the grounds of unfaithfulness which many would expand in the original language and blah 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 that it could cover areas like abuse and and, and things along those lines there are also some here who have been divorced on unbiblical grounds and who have remarried and jesus calls that adultery and there are some proud hearts, maybe even in this room today, that need to repent of that. But there are also some who have been humbled and broken. And they need to know that there is no condemnation in Jesus. And they need to know that there's forgiveness and there's freedom. And that we don't live in a perpetual state of punishment from our God. That for those who repent, there is nothing but healing and forgiving and moving forward. Now follow the progression in Jesus' sermon, this kingdom heart. It's not without order. He says if, if both sides of the marriage bed, both sides, would not indulge anger or contempt toward each other, if both sides would not indulge in lust toward another, and then we'll skip ahead, if neither one of you went back on your word but let your yes be yes and your no be no, then there wouldn't be a heart toward divorce. But again, this isn't the flesh without God. This is the new heart that Jesus gives us. And what's God's heart in this? Man, I'm so, so grateful that Romans 8 says that there's nothing, there's nothing that can separate us from his love for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're called in marriage to, till death do us part. It's Jesus' death that didn't do us part, but actually united us back with our heavenly Father. Blessed are the merciful who are compassionate and kind even when not given that back in return. Now, you'll have to check out the rest of your outline in the bulletin today uh, for the other three illustrations. As ESPN would say, due to time constraints, we move forward in our programming. Jesus' conclusion of this section is this, verse 48. You, therefore. This is the heart of the issue. We always say when we see this, you say, what's the therefore, therefore? We've got to pay attention. He's about to wrap it all up. And he says this. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Great. Anyone reading that going, check, I'm perfect just like my God. Hope not, you liar. Um, C.S. Lewis, he always says it best and funniest. He says, it, he says, the command, be ye perfect, is not 
idealistic gas. It's always better when you say it in the British accent. Uh, idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us, he is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. See, Jesus' commands are impossible on our own, on our, on doing it on our own. That's why Jesus didn't come just for a good example or even good advice, but he came with good news. He said, I have come to accomplish what you couldn't. I came to fulfill. I came to live the perfect life for you, to die for your imperfect life, to raise you to a new life, to allow you to be the humans that God had originally intended, to be holy like he is holy so that we can relate with him and do the good work he's called us to. See, Jesus isn't just giving us a new law. He's not like, well, well, Moses was weak sauce, right? Do this and then you'll live. That's the area of legalism. We are no longer under the law because we've been given new hearts. But he's also not saying on the other extreme, it can be an equally common error, sweet. Jesus paid for my sin. He lived the good life for me. Now I can just swipe the grace visa card and live it up, baby. What he says is he has made you something new. And just like the bird was made with wings so that he could fly and the tree was made to be able to produce fruit, we have been made new. Jesus fulfilled the law, gave us a kingdom heart so that we could live rightly, so that we could know and walk with our God, so that we could experience peace and unity in this world, so that we could be the salt and light to those who don't know Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we know in the room this, this size, this is pressing up against some tender issues, some broken relationships, some irritation that we're feeling toward another, that tug in our heart of discontent with our current situation, the inevitable difficulties that come trying to bring two people into a union of marriage. Father, we need you. We need Jesus. When we think of David's words in Psalm 51, a man who had committed adultery, who had murdered outwardly even, and he cried out to you the same thing we want to cry out this morning, create in us a clean heart. Give us a right spirit. In fact, we claim in Jesus that you did give us a new heart. You did give us a right spirit, that you won't remove us from your presence, but that we can know the joy of walking with you because of what Christ fulfilled and accomplished for us. There's somebody here who needs to let go of the old way and grab onto Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That they do that today to experience this new heart? And for my brothers and sisters here who we all have a long, long way to go, that we would believe and trust your heart for us, that you've given us Jesus, given us a new heart, and now because of that new source, we can live this out, that it is possible to love our neighbor, to be faithful to our spouse, to glorify you through our deeds, but not on our own strength, only through the long-expected Jesus. And we stand on the ground that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but he's created us for good works, and because of this Jesus, we can walk in them and experience the freedom and life and peace with you and others that you intended. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this kingdom heart. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.